I told him that I was pregnant and his first question was, where is the father? And I, at that point he had abandoned me. And he said, well, then the only solution is to give the baby up for adoption. It's the TMI Project podcast, a series of stories about the too much information parts of ourselves we usually leave out because we're too ashamed or embarrassed. I'm your host, Eva Tenuto. This is season three, Stories for Choice. Before we get started, just want to let you know that as the TMI implies, some content might be too much information for some listeners. And remember, your support keeps our content free and accessible to everyone who wants to listen. So if you like what you hear and you're able to chip in, thank you. Either way, we're so glad you're listening. Let's dive in. Since 2010, TMI Project has collected over 2,000 true stories from people with a burning desire to write and tell theirs. Here's what we believe. When you share the story you're most afraid to tell, it turns into a superpower because our vulnerability is where we connect. It's where our power lies. Individually, when we get that story out, the one we've been keeping to ourselves all this time, it creates a subtle shift in our lives. But collectively, that shift is seismic. In season three of the TMI Project podcast, Stories for Choice, we're going to profile storytellers and follow their narratives right up until the moment they walk on stage and read their monologues live in front of an audience. Today, we're going to start close to home. I'm going to share a story about the secret I learned when I was 11 years old, a secret that impacted me so deeply, it eventually led to me creating TMI Project. It was a secret that belonged to my mother, her story for choice. Sharing true stories has a ripple effect. My mom sharing hers deeply impacted our entire family. You are not going to believe what happened in the theater that night. It really is out of this world. But before I start airing out my family's dirty laundry, I know you might be wondering, what is a story for choice? Well, Stories for Choice uses radically true stories that include the TMI parts to challenge the status quo and inspire storytellers and listeners alike to take action for true reproductive justice. Despite the progress made over the decades, threats to reproductive justice are stronger than ever. Currently, laws are becoming more restrictive state by state, and many fear that the Supreme Court will overturn or greatly undermine Roe v. Wade in the next year. We want to be clear, though, about what we mean by choice. True choice is not just about abortion rights. It's about education and comprehensive, safe, accessible, reproductive and sexual health care for all who want and need it to make whatever choice they choose. So now, back to me and my mom. One afternoon in 1984... My mom and I answer the phone at the same time. It's a friend of hers. I'm a nosy 11-year-old and decide to sit quietly on the other end and listen in on their call. Nothing prepares me for what I'm about to hear that day. I hear her friend say, so-and-so just decided to look for her daughter, the one she gave up for adoption. My mom says, I can't believe you're telling me this right now. I just started looking for my son again. My world stops. Those last three words play on repeat in my mind. 
My son again? My son again? My son again? What son? What is she talking about? I'm the oldest of three girls. A son? Who is this woman? Where did my mother just go? I'm frozen in time with a secret lodged in my throat. I don't know how my body knows, but as I ingest the secret, it absorbs the shame of decades. My mom doesn't want me to tell my sisters. She says they're too young to know. So I become the only kid at our dinner table who knows that there is a kid missing. I'm the only one who knows our mother is capable of giving one of her children away. I'm the only one who knows why the sadness she carries with her rises to the surface each May. Every year, I would get go into depression around the time of his birthday. And no matter where I was or who I was with, I just went inside my head and relived every minute that I had with him before I had to give him up. Just a couple of years earlier when I was nine, I found out that this specific set of circumstances went back generations. My mom's mother, my grandmother, also had a baby and gave her up for adoption. Since I was younger when I found out about my grandmother, I didn't question it or understand the details. I didn't know that in 1938, my grandmother became pregnant out of wedlock. Just to remind you what the state of reproductive justice was like at that time, 1938 was the year the federal ban on birth control was lifted. The ban, part of the Comstock laws, said that talking about contraception was obscene and doctors could be jailed for prescribing any type of contraception. The pill didn't become available as a form of birth control until 1960 and the IUD in 68, so condoms and diaphragms were the obscene topics of conversation that could put medical providers behind bars. And the ban was only lifted for married couples. Being pregnant out of wedlock, whatever the age or circumstance, was considered shameful. For the duration of my grandmother's pregnancy, she hid out on a farm in Nebraska, where she traded work for room and board so her family in Iowa wouldn't find out. She slept in the basement with the family's five dogs. For two months, she cared for her baby girl in that basement and then had to give her up for adoption. She returned home, forced to act as if nothing had happened. I don't know any of that when I'm nine. I just know I'm excited about a family road trip and meeting a new aunt. That summer, my mom, grandmother, two little sisters, and I pile into our red station wagon and drive from upstate New York to Iowa to meet Aunt Lois. My mom, however, is meeting her sister for the first time. My mom learned about that story when she was nine. I remember sitting on the couch and looking across out the window and mom sitting in her recliner where she sat all the time. And I was complaining, how come we don't have any more kids? Everybody in the family has so many kids and we're the only ones that only have one I, you know, my aunt had 10, and I just, I was badgering her all the time about that. And finally, she said to me, I had another child, 
but I couldn't raise her. I was, um, wasn't married at the time. And I remember stopping in my tracks and thinking, who is this woman? I, uh, I have a sister. I've always wanted a sister. I was so lonely never having any other siblings and having parents that were lost in their own world. I couldn't believe I have a sister. Secrecy is a legacy. Silence is passed down from one generation to the next. The inherited trauma of holding on to the truth of our lived experience connects us, whether we know it or not. As a result of holding my mother's secret, I become a binge eater. I eat to hold the secrets in. I want nothing more than to be free of it all, but I hold it tight. I stuff it down so I won't accidentally slip and say something. I stop talking in school. I get brutally bullied for my weight. I desperately try to help my mom find her son again. I believe that once she has him, I will have her. At just 11 years old, I start having suicidal ideation. Thankfully, I have one saving grace. An English teacher has us keep journals. We are to write in them every day. We hand them in on Fridays, and on Mondays, she returns them with comments written in the margins in green and red ink. She is the only one who knows everything that's happening. I spill it all onto the page. She knows how miserable I am at school, how obsessed I am with finding my brother, how I've come to believe finding him will fix everything, and she knows I can't stop thinking about killing myself. Writing to her saves me. It gives me an outlet for it all. It's my first experience learning about the power of putting pen to paper and letting someone know what is going on. My mom does something at the time, too, that changes my life forever. She enrolls me in an acting class. I'm silenced at school, but when I step on stage, I can let everything I have bottled up out. I can express myself and be seen. But secrets have a way of snowballing. After the stint with binge eating comes a slew of diets and eating disorders. I start drinking at 14 and continue to do so alcoholically until I'm 32 years old. In 2005, I finally find my way into the rooms of recovery and discover the power of the shared story. At every meeting, I sit on the edge of my seat listening to every person who shares what they struggled through, and I make mental notes anytime a solution is shared. One slogan catches my attention more than the others. You're only as sick as your secrets. Secrets have been controlling the direction of my life for over 20 years, and without a doubt, I am sick from them. Finally, I share my story and start to heal. These things, the immense burden of keeping secrets, putting pen to paper, stepping on stage and feeling the release of giving voice to emotions, letting the audience see me and sharing my own truth, these are all the seeds that were planted that led 
to the birth of TMI Project in 2010. And in 2013, my mother took a workshop and wrote her own story. It was the scariest, most exhilarating thing I've ever done. I think Alice, um, she should have been a, a private investigator um, based on you know how she found me, but she might have a better memory of this than I do. But I, I think uh, what happened was I was contacted by a service by the um, Catholic Charities. Catholic Charities, thank you. <laughs> and I don't believe we spoke at all before we met. And, you know, so our, our first meeting was the first time we ever spoke to each other. The phone is ringing and it's the social worker. And she wants to know why I called. And I told her I wanted to find my son. And she said, why now? And I explained, you know, that he was young. I didn't want to interfere. But now he's older and I'd like to find him. And she said, yes, you because you loved him, you didn't want to interfere in his life. So she told me what the process would be, that the laws had changed, and they would send a letter to the birth parents, and if they agreed, then the Catholic Charities would set up a meeting. It was a weekday, and I got a call from my father at work, and that was the first time that ever happened. And I was pretty shocked. And, you know, I answered the phone and it was him. And he um, asked me if I was busy that night. And I thought that was strange as well. And then he asked me to come home. He said, why don't you come home for dinner? And it was just a very kind of bizarre thing. But I agreed. I, I left my job in New York. I hopped on the train and then I, I went back to Milburn, New Jersey. And normally when I got off the train, I would have to walk home. And it was about a 15 minute walk. And there he was in the parking lot in the car. So I immediately knew there was something very dramatic going on. And I got in the car and, and I was just like, all right, what's going on? And he he's like, well, I guess you could tell this isn't a, a usual request for you to come back and, and have dinner. And he said that your uh, your biological mother had contacted us and was interested in meeting. And I, I was really shocked and I, I, you know, I had a whole bunch of different things going through my head. Um, but, you know, he said that he was 100% okay with whatever I decided to do. And he said that, you know, as long, you know, if I had, if I did decide to meet um, with her, that I was requested not to tell them. I was supposed to wear a purple shirt, a sweater, and he was supposed to wear a white sweater. That's how we were supposed to recognize each other at the boathouse restaurant. You know, I'm, I'm just a nervous wreck. And I, I can't believe that I'm wearing this heavy wool purple sweater and it's 75 degrees out and I'm sweating and thinking I'm going to meet him for the first time and I'm going to be drenched as we walk towards each other. And I was ready to embrace him and he handed me his hand to shake hands. And I thought, okay, <laughs> all right. 
I don't remember shaking hands, but I guess I, I didn't, I just didn't understand, you know, your emotional level. And I, I was more of a, you know, nice to meet you kind of a mode. I think one of the things that was in my head was just seeing someone that looked like me, you know, being, being in a family it was an amazing experience growing up and I had great parents, but it was always a question of why don't you look like your brother or your parents? And it was good to see someone with my lips. I had only met Chris once when I was 18 years old. We were both awkward and nervous and unfortunately got too drunk for either of us to remember much of that encounter. And then I never saw him again. I moved to New York City, and though he and my mom stayed in touch and developed a relationship, I no longer lived at home and never saw him when he came to visit. And then he moved to Japan. He was scheduled to come to the States for business the week after my mom told her story on stage. But his business plans changed. And all of a sudden, he was going to be in town the weekend of the show. To walk out on the stage and to see my entire family and my son in the audience was like a miracle that I never expected to happen. I'm waiting in the wings, clutching the velvet curtain as she walks on stage during the blackout. The lights come up, and she sits tall on her stool and gives voice to the story she had kept hidden for so many years. We are all there to witness her. The way the lights in the theater shone on my family in the first two rows, I couldn't see anybody else. So it was like I was talking just to them. I really pulled everything together and just stood up there and said my story. Here is my mom sharing her story at the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York, in a production called What to Expect When You're Not Expecting. When we were married about a year, John asks, Are you ready yet? No, I exclaim. We get Sam, a cat. Six months later, the same question. We get Herman, a dog. (laughs) But I can no longer put off my husband. He is 33, and I am 25. He wants a baby now. How can I tell him that I'm scared? Not the ordinary kind of scared that engulf most first-time parents. I am terrified. I'm not a first-time mom. I'm a sinner. I committed the most heinous crime. I gave up my child for adoption. It's eight years since I gave up my son. I am absolutely sure that I will be punished with the wrath of God. I am so sure that when his sperm meets my egg, lightning will strike my uterus. My whole body will go up in smoke. Uh, The baby will have the most hideous birth defects this world has ever seen, all because of what I did when I was 17. It's August 8, 1964. Joe is 25. I still have the fairy tale notion that I will find a prince who will treat me like a princess. 
If I had been a confident girl, one with boundaries and solid with self-esteem, I would have refused his ride. But I wasn't, and I didn't. I romantically envisioned Joe coming, showing up for our first date in some kind of chariot. He shows up drunk in an old car with a hole in the floor, one door tied shut with a wire. I willingly get in, rain peppering me through the window that would not close. As the evening progresses, Joe gets drunker. At the drive-in, he pushes me down. No, I shout. He doesn't seem to hear me. I never had sex before, and I'm not sure what happened. I stumble to the ladies' room, and yes, I am broken. My cycle has always been very reliable between 28 and 30 days, and when it gets to be 35 days and nothing happens, I start to panic. When Joe calls to arrange a date, I tell him I'm late. He says, we'll talk about it at 7.30 when we are to meet. He never shows, ever. My girlfriends say to buy Humphrey 11 pills. They're supposed to bring on your period. Then I hear quinine pills will do the trick. I walk alone to the drugstore to buy them. I'm embarrassed and ashamed. They don't work. I talk with my girlfriends about abortion, but none of us know how to get one. We hear that you can go to Puerto Rico, but you have to pay $600. I keep playing hooky from school. I just can't concentrate. When I finally tell my parents, my father says, don't you know that a woman can run faster with her skirt up than a man can with his pants down? I quit school. I visit the priest who tells me adoption is the only option. I arrange to go to St. Martha's residence, home for unwed mothers in Newark. At, we, at home, we pretend that my belly isn't growing bigger. This isn't really happening. I can't understand why my mother won't talk to me about this when she went through the same thing. In 1938, when she was 22 and unmarried, she got pregnant and had to run away from home. She told no one. All by herself, she had my sister Lois and gave her up for adoption. 25 years later, she watches me go through the same thing, but says nothing. How is this possible? At St. Martha's, I'm with other women, and we share the same shame, and we find strength in each other's company. Each night, we sit around telling stories of our past and our hopes for the future. We don't discuss the pain that is to come or what to expect with labor and delivery. We've heard horror stories about the girls who went before us, about the mean nurses at the hospital. No joy will be found in this birth. When the baby is born, I spend two days with him, counting ten baby toes and ten baby fingers on his perfect baby body. I tell him how much I love him. I keep his first baby picture, and I feed him 
and I name him Paul Joseph. On the third day, I say goodbye to that sweet baby boy. Mom and Dad finally come to pick me up to sign the papers. On the way home, we stop for drinks. Eight years later, when I am 25, my husband and I have no problem conceiving. Every occurrence around this pregnancy and birth stands in vivid contrast to the one before. John reassures me that this time I will not be alone, and I'm not. We go to classes together to learn about every step of delivery and birth. At 17, when my water broke, I didn't even know what happened. No one ever told me what was going to happen. The nuns don't explain a thing. They just call a cab to take me to the hospital alone. At 25, I choose my doctors carefully, making sure that they're well-versed in natural childbirth and will allow me to nurse my new baby on the delivery table. At 17, I had to use the doctors the cat charities picked for me. Natural childbirth was not an option, and before I knew it, I was heavily drugged for the birth. At 25, John coaches me in Lamaze and never leaves my side. At 17, each contraction experienced alone magnified my pain and sorrow. My new in-laws and everyone I know gathers to shower me and my new baby with gifts Even people I don't know well send presents to celebrate this new life. I join La Leche League to learn how to breastfeed and welcome this new baby into our family. On the day of delivery, John drives me to the hospital. We talk to each other and connect before we experience this ancient rite of birth. After seven hours of labor, she arrives. No devil child was born that day. She's a perfectly beautiful, sweet baby girl. She comes bounding into the world, smiling. We call her Eva. For me, hearing my mom tell her story was life-changing because it was the moment my entire family shifted from a family that lived steeped in secrets and shame to one that lived to tell the truth. It gets messy at times, but it's worth every bit of mess to live in connection, to live with freedom, to live with the ability to love each other for who we really are, not who we're trying to pretend to be. When I went to see Alice perform her story, to be honest, I, I didn't fully understand what I was walking into. It was a bit difficult to process at the time, but then after a while, you know, trying to understand what she went through and, um, you know, how she felt about, you know, what could have been at the time if laws were different or rules were different or, um, you know, that was, that was a lot for me to, to understand and, and process at the time. But I still, you know, didn't fully understand everything you went through, even until maybe the last few years. Like, I didn't understand the extent of 
the situation that you're in and um, how difficult it was. And, you know, I think I, I watched a video of you online maybe a year ago. And I think that's when it, it really, you know, sunk in. And I felt like for the first time I'd been heard. And it was, and then walking off the stage into Eva's arms, I sobbed and she whispered in my ear, you whispered in my ear, you did great, mom, you did great. And it was so, it was like I left bags of shame on that stage and I felt lighter and less burdened. And from then I started to transition from being this victim to a survivor. And every time we told the story to see the faces of the people in the audience who had no idea what women had to go through was amazing and, and just so great to be heard finally and to be able to tell your story, your truth. So it was a phenomenal experience, life-changing for sure. She is one of the, you know, one of the coolest people I know. I, I think, you know, what she's done with her life and I just have so much respect for, for her and the way she thinks about things in life and how she handles everything that kind of comes her way. So she's been kind of a role model for me. Special thanks to Chris for joining our family and this episode. We are so grateful for your willingness to share your side of the story. And thank you, Mama, for sharing your story and helping to inspire a movement of sharing secrets and ridding ourselves of shame. Stay tuned for next week's episode when we introduce you to Betty and Morka, who were both at the Women's Weekend Workshop with my mom. They both held on to a secret for decades until that weekend, and when they shared it, they discovered they no longer needed to hold it alone. I'm Eva Tenuto. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. TMI Project is available to offer true storytelling workshops and performances for your school or workplace. This episode of Season 3 of the TMI Project podcast, Stories for Choice, was produced in partnership with Radio Kingston. It was written by me and edited, produced, and mixed by Daisha Clay. Our theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Our operations and programs manager is Blake File. Our marketing and digital coordinator is Laura Marie Ruoco. Our administrative assistant is Elijah Jackson. Our graphic designer is Lauren Gill. Our workshop leaders are Perla Iora, Kaepelie Kalnick, Haley Downs, Jonathan Gonzalez, Rain Grayson, Ray Lipkin, Dara Laurie, Micah, Julie Novak, Blake File, and me, Eva Tenuto. To learn more, support our work, and find a special writing prompt so you can start telling your story, visit tmiproject.org slash podcast. <laughs>